on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUPLP Hillsborough, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, black and white and red all over, author Jonathan Safran Foer is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. Live on WHUPLP Weekly. Also evergreen on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social media. Media, media, medium. At MSF Murmur is Twitter, Instagram, and something else. Oh, we have Facebook. Check us out. Murmurradio at gmail.com. Email us. Let us know you're listening. Ask us questions. We, we want, I want, I want, I, I, I want to read your thoughts and questions on air so tweet at us email us welcome to murmur today's guest is jonathan saffron foer jonathan has uh, a paperback version of his book here i am uh the paperback is out here i am came out last year and uh, uh, he's out talking about it, so we're happy to have him with us here. We'll get to Jonathan in a moment. Uh, yeah, I want to, thinking about having John on the show, I wanted to talk about a, it, it borders on cliche, so let's dive in uh, w- knowing that with anti-cliche goggles on. And the topic is is this sort of push-pull reading and writing, where we are reading, where we are as where we are as a people in terms of how we read, what we read, are we reading, how we write, are we writing. Google this. Google our books on in, on a decline, you know, the, the death of the book. And you'll get as many, as many sort of intelligent surveying, proving that it is on the decline as it is not. It is, now look, let's parse this a little bit. Books, physical forms of books are changing. We know this. This is not, this is not new news. Um, Though reading, how how does one quantify if we are reading? Ironically, I think we're reading more now than ever. If if we want to drill down on this idea. We read things. We read text messages. We read Instagram posts. Every photo has prose. So philosophically, we are actually reading as much as we've ever read. Are we reading books? Not as much, certainly. I, I, I think the Pew surveys of the world, the NEA, NEA had a good survey. I think the Pew, the last Pew survey on reading was 2015, I believe. And you'll see that the data points trending down, not significantly down, like not off the cliff down, 
but we are re- we are reading fewer books and other platforms are taking over. So I, I don't I don't think that we want to go into that kind of metric thicket. The I the irony of this push pull: Are we reading? Are we writing more? Well, we are reading more, but we're also taking more photos. But are we better photographers? <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're more is more better. I do think lost in the physical data accumulation of are we reading more is are we reading better stuff? Are we writing in a in a more eloquent? I say poetic, but not poetic in terms of poetry. How are we reading? How are we writing? One of the things that competes with our not capacity but our drive to read is it reading falls right in that crevice of passive active experiences. I'm always talking about on this show uh, and at parties. I'm tons of fun at parties, but I'm always talking about film as a ultimately a passive experience. And now we one can't debate. Well, you can debate that. You know, we, then we'd have to define what film is and what kinds of film is. But let's say film at, at its best, Hitchcock has shown us at its best, film is a passive audience experience. Reading is right in that crevice of activity and passivity. There are parts of it where it certainly is passive. Read the beginning of, um, I think it is the first, say, seven pages of Grapes of Wrath where Steinbeck describes the road. I believe it was seven. My nightmares remember it to be seven. Uh, so that's passive, but then you have writing that is the opposite. And it's, it's interesting. I've heard writers say, and we'll talk to Jonathan about this, that writing that books speak to you, you know, when a character in a book speaks, you are forming that voice in your mind. So when you form a voice in your mind, that's a great emblem of of the equal parts passivity and activity of reading because the passive part is you're listening to the voice. The active part is you're conjuring the voice. So I think reading, one of the reasons why reading and books, let's say books is a catch-all, not the physical form, but as we know it, but reading, no matter what the girth of the article you're reading, it's still a buoyant activity because it, it, it challenges both that those parts of our thought process, the active and the passive. However, how much longer do we want to be active? That's the challenge of books. Um, it, it seems to me, reading a really quick uh, Pew study, this was, a, again, a few years ago. Twenty. I read it this morning, but the study was from 2015. So this it probably changed not so dramatically. In 2015, 69% of people with a graduate degree engaged in what they would call literary reading, reading of literature. And what that tells me is it's not simply the inner desire, those people possess the inner desire to read, they also possess or they also charged with the mandate to read. And that seems to be why young people still read as well. They, they are mandated to, they are charged with reading as an assignment, uh, as, a, as a quick, you know, a quick sort of homage to this. I, uh, about a, a week or so ago, I gave um, my nephew, uh, it was his birthday, and I gave him some Stephen King books. And when I handed him the book, I said, I'm sorry, because I know he received other books for his birthday. And I felt very bad. I thought, well, this is, poor kid's going to remember this is the birthday he got all these books. And he said to me, it's okay. Books are life. I thought, wow, that's really, really insightful, really sophisticated pure thing to say about books and from you know but i've also heard young people say books smell like old people <laughs> you know so, so again that the the tug of war over the youth reaction to books but that struck me recently um letters right letter writing if you want to treat yourself to a really great book now get yourself the collection of vincent van gogh's letters they're extraordinary uh, 900 letters of his sur- have survived time. M- many of the correspondences, a majority were to his brother Theo, great Robert Altman film, Vincent and Theo. Uh, the, the letters are extraordinary. 
they show how devout a reader Van Gogh was. Paul Gauguin actually once said to Van Gogh, you read too much, exclamation point. Uh, He actually attributed some of Van Gogh's ongoing mania to his love of books. Uh, Van Gogh loved Hugo and Dickens and Balzac and Shakespeare and these these letters. And they they come, you can get them. I think Penguin publishes them. You can go on Amazon and get them. It's an extraordinary volume. There's one letter that Van Gogh and Gauguin co-authored, co-signed, actually. It was a letter uh, they had written to um, Emile Bernard, I was going to say Zola, Emile Bernard, uh, who was an avant-garde artist. Bernard, they were talking about, corresponding about this idea of creating a community of artists, Gauguin and Van Gogh, it never came to be. But the letter was created, and the letter is in this this compendium, and it's signed by both men. It's it's the only document of, 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 of this kind where Van Gogh and Gauguin physically have their signatures. It was auctioned in 2012, the letter was auctioned at Sotheby's, I believe, uh, half nearly half a million dollars for this letter. Now, that's not quite the point. The point is this man, Van Gogh's um, devotion to the written word. Um, you know, tele- he could have telegrammed people at that time. Phones weren't, were on the verge of being used commercially uh, a little later. Van Gogh died uh, in um, say 1890. Is that when Van Gogh died? Uh, he was 37 years old. Uh, Van Gogh, uh, I was cruising by this local bookstore. There's a really, they do this quote of the day. There's a really great, great, uh, Van Gogh quote that they hung. This was a couple of days ago. And the Van Gogh quote is, uh, so often a visit to a bookshop has cheered me and reminded me that there are good things in the world. So he didn't think books smelled like old people. <laughs> no, it's not a Van Gogh quote. Uh, there's another quote. Uh, talking about reading, writing, not talking about arithmetic, but talking about reading and writing. Well, I want to throw this quote at Jonathan. I'll throw it at you first. It's Hemingway talking about writing. He said, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. In answer to the question, what is black and white and red all over? It is a letter, but it is also a typewriter. Now this. Good morning, hon. Your breakfast is ready. What time is it? It's about 11.30. 11.30? I guess we've been staying up too late. I know it. I made them just the way you like them, sunny side up. Oh, nice. It's really pretty outside. How about taking me for a walk after you finish your breakfast? Oh, I suppose I ought to try to do some writing first. Any ideas yet? Lots of ideas. No good ones. Well, something will come. It's just a matter of settling back into the habit of writing every day. Yeah, that's all it is. It's really nice up here, isn't it? I love it. I really do. I've never been this happy or comfortable anywhere. Yeah, it's amazing how fast you get used to such a big place. I tell you, when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of (laughs) scary. I fell in love with it right away. When I came up here for my interview, it was as though I'd been here before. I mean, we all have moments of deja vu, but this was ridiculous. It was almost as though I knew what was going to be around every corner Get a lot written today? Yes. Hey, the weather forecast said it's going to snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? Oh, 
Come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. I just want to finish my work. Okay, I understand. I'll come back later on with a couple of sandwiches for you, and maybe you'll let me read something then. Wendy, <clears throat> let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Okay. think of how to define a movie i'm kind of left to the question of well what isn't a movie <laughs> so it's a sort of process of elimination uh because i think the the minefield is littered uh with deception and <laughs> a book certainly isn't a movie so in order to solve some of this trigonometry and riddling I brought in an expert riddle solver uh, he is an award-winning writer his most recent literary progeny <laughs> is available on paperback. Uh, I, I wonder, is that kind of like a, a movie getting its Blu-ray release? We'll ask him. In any event, we are honored to have with us at the Modern School of Film and on Murmur Radio, Mr. Jonathan Saffron Foer. Jonathan, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, thank you. So how does that work mentally? You know, when a book is released on its first run, you know, it's not obviously just hardback anymore, and then the paperback comes around what is that feeling is it one of those oh yeah right i i wrote that or are you still kind of tethered to it well, even when a book comes out in hardback you've already been finished with it for probably a year yeah or nine months six months whatever it is um and it's also a sort of complicated question to try to answer how do you feel about a book when you're in the middle of working on it or <laughs> yes you know when when do you feel like you are 
finished with it. Um, I happened to have turned 40 not long after the um, book came out. So if you were to ask me, how do I feel about being 40? <laughs> I would find that to be a similarly complicated question. You know, the, the truth is, or my best way of you know trying to talk about it, is to say I don't really know how I feel about what I write. And there are all kinds of things that would influence my feelings. So, you know, if I'm going to go do some readings now because the paperback is out and I show up in a theater and there's like a thousand people and it feels great, then I'm probably going to feel pretty good, yeah. if, but confused in, its, in, in, a, in a very particular way as well. If I go and, you know, 30 people show up and they only have aggressive questions, then I'll, that will encourage me to feel differently. I don't reread my books after I finish them, which would probably be the best way or the most sort of authentic way to re-engage with the project and figure out what it is I, I feel on the level of like being a writer rather than being a marketer of myself. Um, but, but I don't do that. So yeah, I guess it, it, it can be a little bit alienating. On the other hand, there's nothing quite as gratifying as meeting a writer, you know, an individual, uh, excuse me, a reader. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put your first answer on record. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Uh, it seems like you actually enjoy engaging uh, the public and doing tours for lack of a better word. Um, is that still hold true when you come out with a new book now with such a, a, a wide berth in between the third one being a bit of a distance away have people changed? I mean, I know the answer is yes, but in terms of your lens, um, you, you know, is, is the public still the public now with a new book out? Or do you have to kind of reverse engineer your expectation of what being out in the public with, with a book even means for you? First of all, in that wide berth, I also had two births. I had two kids. You did. So Congratulations, talk about by the way. change, you know, I the my perspective changed so much that I don't even know how how I would be able to differentiate that from the world changing. Yeah. It's like when you're on a subway. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of arri arriving at a subway platform and your your train does and then a train going in the opposite direction arrives at the same time and one of you starts to move and you can't tell if it's you or the <laughs> other one. Yes. And also, you know, the public really isn't the public, like we're talking about a very small subset of the public, um, you know, for a book to be a New York Times bestseller, I don't actually know what the numbers are, but I assume you have to sell, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 copies, something like that. I could be wrong about that, but that's my impression. That's just not a lot of public, you know, Yeah. like uh, TV shows that nobody watches, YouTube channels that you've never heard of. Uh, movies that are considered bombs dwarf that scale. You know, what, what we're really talking about is how is the literary public changed and actually something even a subset of that, which is like A, the self-selecting group of people who would come to a reading and B, the media. Right, right, um, right. In terms of people who come to readings, I don't have any impression of a change other than that you know, I seem to be getting older and my readership seems to be getting older with me. Um, or at least people who come to readings in terms of the media, there's just less of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are fewer newspapers. There's fewer newspaper coverage devoted to the arts and to literature in particular. The definition of art has really expanded, you know, to include, Everything from like putting emphasis more on things like pop music to um, video games. And I don't think either of those are bad things, but there is a limited amount of space in a newspaper. And um, which so, you know, everything is everything is there's there's a uh, finite resources. We're speaking with the uh, unfrozen caveman writer, uh, Jonathan Saffron Fuller. I find you very eloquent about the humanity of writing, which I want to get into a little bit. But you know, it's funny, you said something about New York Times bestsellers. I was thinking about, you know, the old 
tag. Oh, uh, we we have a gold record. You know, when I was a kid, gold records sounded like the ultimate. But then, you know, platinum records actually sell are bigger sellers than gold records. I guess I watched too much Solid Gold as a child. I just love that show. Uh, in, in the opening, I talked about, you know, trying to understand films based on what they aren't. Um, so I want to look at this a little in reverse with writing. Wh what do you think books, use? again, that word, it's funny, you know, certain words are under assault. The word video, you know, it sounds so like 19, 1980s. But if, if we use book as a catch-all, what do you think books do optimally still? What, what do they still do to define themselves? Pretend you're in a Radiohead song and an alien lands and asks you, what is a book? What is a book? Well, I mean, there's a straightforward answer, which is it is an assemblage of language and only an assemblage of language. Um, that doesn't work for, you know, children's books. It doesn't necessarily work for art books. It doesn't work for some experimental or crossover books. But in terms of novels and nonfiction, it does a pretty decent job of describing them. Yeah. Um, in terms of what they do experientially, which is, I think, the question you're getting at, I think that they can create a kind of intimate and collaborative experience that is not necessarily better, but it is different than what other art forms um, or media can do, in part because of, I mean, it was, I sort of caught myself when I was giving that first description when I said, and only this. Mm. It, it is the and only that makes books rich in the particular way that they are. It is their limitedness. You know, they are, there is a kind of impression now that, um, you know, the broader a kind of sensory experience is the better, which is why everything is moving, you know, music, film, video games, TV, it's all moving toward like augmented reality or virtual reality, a kind of complete sensory experience, which is like immersive. That's, that's really the word. Immersive is understood to be a goal yeah, rather than one way of doing things. So books are the opposite of immersive in the sense of sensory immersion, but they're the ultimately immersive experience in the sense of um, empathy. And I think that that's because of how much they withhold, which creates a space for the reader to, the reader is compelled to enter. And on the most simple level, like you think about the difference between a film and a movie, right? If there's a tree. A, a film and a book, you mean? A film and a book, sorry. A film and a movie, we could talk about another time. I was going to say, yeah, when, we're, when I meet you in Paris, we can talk about that. Yeah, between a um, <laughs> film and a book, uh, you know, if you see a tree in a film, you see a tree in a film and you receive the image and um, there are all kinds of ways in which it can move you, but um, not among them is your, your recognizing that as the tree from your, I don't know, in front of your childhood house when you passed on the way to school every day, the one that you had your first date beneath, whatever. When you, in a book, you know, tree, those four letters, tiny black ink on a white page, nothing could be more materially simple, nothing could be less physically immersive. Um, nothing could offer less to your senses than that tiny bit of black ink on a white page. It, the reader imagines a tree, or most do. You know, most readers, when they read a bit of dialogue, they imagine voices. An awful lot of people, myself included, cannot read without hearing the words, you know, in, in, in their minds. Yeah. So who is supplying the voices? Who is supplying the images? It's not the writer, it's the reader. But that, that begs a, a sub-question of a sub-question, speaking with Jonathan Safran Fuller. You know, Vim Vendors once, I was talking to him about um, metaphors in movies, and he said it's impossible, if not very difficult, to put a metaphor in a movie because a movie is a metaphor. What's a book's relationship to metaphor A? And B, this is what vexes me a tick, and I'd love your unpacking of this is a book a passive or an active experience for the reader well books you know certainly filled with metaphors and my favorite books feel like 
metaphors, but a very certain kind of metaphor. So, you know, a metaphor tries to explain an unknown by, by comparing it to something that is better known. Um, so my favorite works of art, whether they are films or books or paintings or pieces of music are ones where I know that they are explaining something true. When I know that they, they are presenting me with a metaphor that is deep and, and personal to me, but I don't know what it is exactly that they're explaining, Yeah, you know, because once I know what's on the other side of the metaphor, it just kind of becomes didactic or it's closed. It's not open. It doesn't resonate with me. Um, I care most when I believe that the creator is telling me something urgent, but I don't know exactly what it is that I'm being told. And when that is an open question that I live with, um, for as long as the art, you know, as long as the work of art lives with me, um, in terms of reading being a passive or active experience, it really depends on the book and it really depends on the reader. Mm. You know, um, there's certainly books that I've read that I just received in more or less the same way that I would receive, I don't know, a TED lecture, you know, <laughs> yes. you, you sit there and it's kind of <laughs> cool. You learn a little something, you turn it off and maybe you mention it at a cocktail party, but it goes away. Um, and I've also read books and among them, my favorite books where I couldn't just receive them, you know, where they not only created a space for me, but demanded my entry. And those are books that often frustrate me and sometimes infuriate me and sometimes move me, sometimes are interesting, sometimes are political, but they are meeting me somewhere. Mm. You know, where the, the book becomes a kind of site of a rendezvous rather than um, um, something that I just take in. Fr frustration is underrated. I, I always say this about movies. Tension to me means expectation, not simply that I need a massage. So it, I love the, you know, I love op I love questions that don't have answers, but aren't rhetoric. And I think the best works do that. Here I am rereading it again. Was thinking, you know, one thing you do so. I mean, you do so many things so well, but. And I think this is kind of a virtue of great books and films when they can do this also are virtuous. This idea of macro and micro in simultaneity, meaning small stories and big stories. And, and I think about this, not to get too deep into politics today, but thinking about, you know, watching the news and, and, and obviously all the top line conflicts and top line political stories, but wondering what the treatment of people and the emotional the emotional vocabulary of people why isn't that news i think your books and books can do this at their best but your books always sort of speak to this that the conf larger conflicts are equal to if if not less than the conflicts of people <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm. you know i i think sometimes we reverse you know i the 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 country and the world rallies around big conflicts as they should but why don't we rally around personal conflicts as actively? Here I Am does an exquisite job of paralleling these ideas. Movies don't do that as well because time is a different standard. Well, in a way, it's the point of that particular book. You know, is, oh, good. <laughs> um, no, yeah. Uh, the, or at least a kind of confusion that we can feel about the scales of our lives, yeah. you know, and, what is big? What is small? Like, how do we measure our disliking our job with the image of the, um, you know, um, drowned Syrian boy that we saw in the newspaper that morning? Um, it makes, you know, us feel like assholes for caring about our jobs. How do we measure the scale of um, some kind of very 
explicit infidelity, like a sexual infidelity, how do we measure that scale against a tiny withholding? Right. You know, and um, the one of the things that can be so confusing when trying to get a grip on scale is that the small creates the big, yes. you know, and the big yes. creates the small. Yes. And Jacob and Julia, who are in their early 40s, who are good people, loving people, smart people, um, people who love each other and are in love with each other, have for years just misdiagnosed the big and small and allowed these things that they at the time um, considered too small to mention, allowed them to accumulate and until they became in, in the destruction of a family. It's, it's a beautifully uh, elusive scale and slope because I often think revolution is not simply war. You know, personal revolution, because you said it's kind of the yin and the yang. A personal revolution can lead to a, another form of revolution, which could, in fact, look like a war. But in this reflective culture we we live in, we do seem to reflect our problems against larger problems. With Jonathan Saffron Fuller, wanted to get onto a couple beats before we let you go, Jonathan. I was thinking of you this week. I, I was dating a, a girl a few years ago, and she, she was a teacher. And one day she said to me, do you think I'm a good writer? And I said, I don't know. I've never read anything you've written. She said, well, I have wrote you all those emails. Then I thought you, you, you couldn't have just said yes. You couldn't have mustered a yes. I screwed that, that up, man. That would have been so so horrible, so painful. This is welcome to the bullshit of my life. <laughs> no, but you know, it's a yes, little. You're, it, a good, you're, not, you're the best writer. It's a crooked. There, well, I didn't there want are to. Not other writers. Hold on, just to go back to the beginning question. <laughs> yes. you, you said you were thinking of me. <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. No, I want to bounce some forms of writing off of you, uh, and and get your your take on them within the vernacular of are they writing? Your email writing has literally been published. Emailing qualifies as writing, right? And if so, is it a certain corner of the room of writing? And what corner of that round room is it? <laughs> well, first of all, who the hell am I to say? You know, it's, you know it's, what? It's... We're signing off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, who, who am I to say? And secondly, I think being dismissive of forms is something we do really at our own expense, right? Because we're proven wrong, you know. And that which seems um, cheap, or that which seems surface or small, you know, can can end up being a form that's not only important to the culture, but important to, to us. So, um, also I'm not sure exactly what, th there's a real good in celebrating good writing in whatever form it is. I don't know exactly what good comes from, um, from putting different forms on the outside of some kind of valued circle, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I've read amazing emails, amazing emails. I've read, you know, amazing, you know, comic books used to be outside of the sort of territory of literature, and that was to literature's mistake um, or what, to literature's loss. Um, what, what about tweets? Tweets are another story. Yeah, no, and I, I know you're not on Twitter, so an email is is is, a, is more of a measure than a tweet is of a writer. Is is that? You know, I I, I have nothing against Twitter. I, it's actually not any kind of particularly deliberate choice that I've made. I just, for whatever reason, missed that train to bring the train metaphor back, and um, <laughs> felt no need felt no need to run to the next station and catch it. It just. I just I don't I don't miss it, but I know plenty of people who I really respect who use it and love using it and get a lot of their information through it. I think that it's good to distinguish between it's good to recognize great writing. Let's put it that way. Um, and when great writing great writing may be more likely to come in the form of a novel than in the form of a tweet, but when it comes in the form of a tweet that's great and worth 
you know, celebrating as well. I was thinking of you this morning reading Bob Dylan's acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize. Have you read this yet? No. Uh, no. So, you know, just to reframe this, because it goes into another question of writing. Uh, obviously, Dylan was just awarded the prize in literature, and, and he just released his um, speech, 4,008 words long. Uh, he actually, if, if you don't have the time to read it or a moment to read it, he actually recorded it as well. He did a, a textual, a spoken word version of it, and he talks a lot about his own literary traditions, um, stuff we all go through. He talks about Mo how Moby Dick and All Quiet on the Western Front. He also talks about different songwriters, Buddy Holly and uh, Lead Belly. Um, well, I'll tell you, if you mentioned everything is illuminated, I'd be really enthusiastic about the selection. This whole this whole conversation would have gone a different way. Um, yeah. And you'd be on iTunes. It's my whole life would have. When you heard Dylan won the prize in literature, what were your thoughts? My knee-jerk response was that it was a silly choice. Um, that, you know... It, as as silly as like Philip Roth winning a songwriting prize, <laughs> um, or Shakespeare. And, <laughs> yeah, wonderful as his lyrics are, they are song lyrics, and they weren't written to be independent of the music, and so on. You can imagine that response, but I think I was sort of talked out of it, and um, came to think about it differently. I think it was a bit of a kind of conservative knee-jerk, the, the, exactly the kind of thing that I was trying to avoid earlier in our conversation when you were asking me about, you know, the relative values of emails or tweets. Um, it's, I think we're dismissive of, like, it's better to broaden um, the boundaries. Uh, it, it allows for more to be great and that's ultimately what we're all in it for is to have you know material that moves us whatever form it comes in and oftentimes the newer the form the greater the chances of it moving us so there's nothing particularly new about songwriting obviously it's older than novel writing but um recognizing it as literature i think i think is a valuable thing who who or what talked you out of that uh it was actually david remnick the editor of the new yorker we had an exchange about it and he just gave, put a, a very strong and convincing argument that um that i was open to you know, hemingway talked about writing you know how to write you go to the typewriter and bleed um i was thinking about a word you used in why you wrote or began to write or continue to write, this word loneliness. And it's funny because going back to what we were saying about before the macro, micro of personal, you know, personal uh, challenges and global challenges, I, 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 loneliness is a topic that fascinates me. How do you define loneliness? Is it a feeling that you have? Uh, and is that, does it motivate you to write? Has it motivated you to write? Well, I assume it's a feeling everybody has. Um, and I would have no way of knowing if I feel it differently or more or less than other people. But for me, I think it has something to do with the feeling of not being met, you know, to arrive in a place and find no one else there. Um, so that, that, place is not a literal place and it can take a lot of different forms it can be an emotional place it can be um i think a kind of loneliness that often inspires writing is um the feeling of being unable to share either because you don't yet have the words for it or the metaphors for it or a, a, a conversant but um, being able to share something of urgent importance to you. And, you know, the thing about, it's like I was saying earlier about metaphors, that my favorite books are the ones that are metaphors. I just don't know what they are metaphors for. And uh, the hope is that in the process of writing, you will come to know what it is, what this like, great pressure inside of you is, that it is only by releasing it. It's like um, 
you know, you've, I'm sure you've had a clogged pipe at some point. And it's not until you snake it and pull the thing out that you can see what it was the whole time. Um, here's a quote for you. W.H. Uh, Auden said, I look at what I write so that I can see what I think. I don't approach a book with ideas. I don't approach it with characters or an argument to make or a voice that I found, but rather some kind of pressure inside the loneliness, something that wants to be out in the world and met by another, even if it's just an imagined other. And I won't know what it is. It has something to do with this book. I, I, I don't know if you, you, you climbed into a tent while you were giving that beautiful answer. It, it, uh, some of it was a little it, uh, uh, scratchy, but I, I, I got it. I, I put a grocery bag over my head, actually. <laughs> you you know, hear that? That makes, that makes two of us, man. Yeah. I called you the unfrozen caveman writer. You're really the unknown comic writer. Can, can writing end loneliness? Uh, is that, you know, it's, it's like we tell actors when you act in a scene – choose an objective that you can never meet because once you meet it, the scene ends. So can a book end loneliness and does it aspire to end loneliness either for the writer or for the reader? Well, I think it can end the loneliness. It's like it fills the whole of the book, you know, like um, a book, uh, writing a book doesn't seem to cure anything other than the absence of that book but it does that very well it does it perfectly in fact so it sounds a little bit little 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 french maybe um as long as we're picking on the french we can, no I, I i meant it in all uh envy but yes go on. <laughs> i know it would be great to be french now right no, it wouldn't. Of course, it wouldn't. <laughs> no, but it'd be good to eat there. <laughs> what, I, they, they they have better bread. I mean, I only I say that honestly. You know, I teach a lot of French students, and they always come. What they ask me, what is wrong with your bread? I don't know. Um, the, the last question. I, was I know. I know what's wrong with our bread. What? It's homogeneous. Yeah. So what's good about French bread is that the outside could you know pierce your upper palate. Yes. And the inside is almost too soft to um, sleep on. And I, I think it's that contrast that makes it really delicious. More, more even than however many sticks of butter are involved. More even than, And the same applies for a croissant, by the way. Applies for an eclair. Across the spectrum of French baking, it is the difference between the outside and the inside that makes it so damn good. And... All bread in America, with the exception of like a really great New York bagel, is homogeneous. I, I, I that and disgusting because of that. That is legion. I'm literally, I mean, you literally solidified, crystallized exactly what I've always felt about croissant. What is your optimal croissant? I mean, what is is it flaky? The the duality and the contrast. I'm totally with you, but I'm I'm interested about your peccadillo here. What is your favorite kind of croissant experience? Or are you a croissant eater, I guess, is the first question. I'm not, really. Oh, damn it. Okay. Yeah, sorry. What's your opti- then what's your optimal bagel experience? Um, maybe we should do baguette. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you say my ultimate experience, you mean with whom am I sitting and at what am I looking? I, or do you I, mean... Like it's warm and there's butter on it. Um, I like the, the the latter. Yeah, it's more interesting, right? Yeah, it's 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 warm and there's butter on it. The, the last question I have, <laughs> the last question I have, you had majored in philosophy at Princeton. It seems like I wonder about modern philosophy. You know, I I think a common misconception in my view of philosophy is that philosophers answered questions. I always reason that philosophers loved the act of asking questions. Would you call yourself a philosopher? Well, this is back to, uh, you know, definitions. Like, what is the good in contracting the definition of a philosopher and what's the good of expanding the definition? And um, the good in expanding it is that People are more inclined to try to talk about ideas that are hard to talk about and um, without feeling unqualified or self-conscious. 
So I don't feel like one myself. Um, certainly not of the model that you know I read when I was or was supposed to read when I was a <laughs> philosophy major in college. So noted. <laughs> uh, on, on the other hand, if somebody wanted to read maybe Eating Animals, for example, my nonfiction book, as a work of philosophy, I would I wouldn't find that preposterous. So, so what are you? Are you a, are you a writer? Is that to find a point, or is that the point? Or does it even matter? Or is this too an American question? You know, is I think I think it's funny you should say that. I think it's a very American question. It is. God damn it! You know, I was yeah. I had uh, the tallest man on earth on the show the other day. I don't know if you know, great songwriter, uh, Swedish, and we were talking about the difference in American questions and in non-American questions and. This seems to be part of that wheelhouse. I mean, does do you hate that question? I don't hate it. I just I think that it can be it can take us away from what we mean rather than bring us closer to it. Yeah. Um you know, the answer to the question I suppose is yes. I'm a writer. I'm a writer, I'm a father. I'm a left-handed vegetarian Jew who's short-sighted. Is this Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> do you write with a big pen <laughs> eight million people in the states right now <laughs> that's right you know i guess we didn't use the a word but you're an artist and art isn't simply yeah, the a word where i come from is different you're an art hall um it seems like a generation and i'm still entangled in this that we were asked what do you want to be when you grow up are your kids going to be asked that what do you want to be what do they want to be when they grow up well, I hope I'm not the one who asks it. That's about all I have control over, you know, and I hope that I can dissuade them from thinking of it as an important question or a question that, you know, that's it's a question that's best resisted rather than answered. When you teach students, where does definition and precision come in for you? Last question, I promise. Um, I think... I like when things are open. I like when things resonate, when we have reason to continue to think about something and wrestle with it, but only when it's clear. You know, I think it's really easy to mistake things that are um, accidentally ambiguous for things that or you know, a kind of absence of understanding or a lack of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. For being deep when they're really not. They're just um, not careful. But sometimes a really careful and deep examination of something doesn't result in an answer. It just creates a, a set of questions that we can continue to ask ourselves and each other. Uh I'm sick of think. I'm sick of thinking. That's overrated. I, I want to thank you. Um, I'd love to continue this maybe uh, over uh, at H and H or something uh, next time I'm in New York. And uh, but in the meantime, continued on this really cool, interesting, eclectic, polymathic journey. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for allowing us to pick at your big brain for a spell. And if we can ever be of service, let us know. Boy, I I, I hope I can think of a way. <laughs> Cheers. Be well, man. All right. Take care. Did it sound like he was rubbing um, a thin sheet of sandpaper across his beard as we were talking? It was weird. You know, it's funny. Jonathan, uh, there's a funny interview he did where he talks about writing and adjusting the laptop or, or fearing that putting his laptop on his lap as he was writing would have uh, a sort of uh, testicular <laughs> effect <laughs> on his uh, on his ability to procreate. However, he uh, he's, he has two kids, so I think his contribution <laughs> to the population is is uh, is now complete. I was admittedly during that interview, I was thinking about. Well, two things. I'll tell you what I was thinking about. But uh, Jonathan, there's an interesting... I didn't get into this with Jonathan. This was the last beat. I would have gotten into it, so I'll get into it with you a little bit. Um, so in 2012, he HBO hired Jonathan to do a show called All Talk. And Ben Stiller was going to direct and star and uh, Alan Alda. 
and Scott Rudin, the producer who produced, I believe, produced Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, the book of Jonathan's that became a film. So this was all set to go. Jonathan had developed this content for HBO for two years, um, and the show was cast, and uh, they were a month out. They were in pre-production, and Jonathan pulled the plug on the show, which is unbelievable and fascinating, and really a conversation with Jonathan to be had in and of itself at another time. Uh, He said, and uh, quoting here, uh, I had kind of a nervous breakdown. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a showrunner. Now, a showrunner is, is the writer, prototypically the writer who is also the head producer, the the Merlin, the Gandalf of the show, uh, for want of a better metaphor. So Jonathan pulled the plug, and he said, furthering the quote here, said, I don't want to be a TV writer. That's now how, that's not how I want to live my life, which begs the question, quote, how do I want to live my life? What a fascinating decision making moment uh, to. And also, I mean, we could look at this uh, in a devil's advocacy, you know, all these people prepared and all this money spent and the writer decided not to go forward. But if we could take that. I wouldn't say low-lying fruit, but if we could take those parts out of it and someone making the decision and a decision that would have been economically fruitful, although Jonathan financially is doing very well, it would appear, uh, it's fascinating. He actually made a determination how he wanted to live his life. And writers, I always find writers are very much in touch with this. Uh, Woody Allen, who you can make the argument is as much, if not more, a writer as a filmmaker, talks about how when he films, he wants to film on a schedule of nine to five so he can live as, as quote, this is going to sound funny, Woody wants to live as normal a life as possible. Now, taking the emotional uh, irony out of that uh, statement, the routine of it for him, uh, the routine of it for the writer, the environment of it for the writer. So... Jonathan and many writers I know stitch in, they have the opportunity to stitch in the, the, the desire, the optimal nutritional architecture of their life in with their, their writing. Now, part of this is like first world artist problems, boo-hoo, but I find it interesting. I don't always find it interesting. We have, we, we, we've got to be fair here. You cannot simply... Uh, you, you isolate people who achieve in arts from their decisions. Not, simply because you have made it in the arts doesn't make your decisions more or less interesting. These are still human beings making human decisions for human reasons. So I think Jonathan, uh, that piece of architecture, that piece of decision-making was really fascinating to me. I, I like this, and, and I like blending the art and the, the, the human decisions that go into it. And again, keep the change when I reiterate and re-suggest you read Van Gogh's letters. So beautiful, so touching. What, it, what an eloquent letter writer many people feel at that time that what he was unable to give voice to as a human he was able to give voice to in writing. Uh, he was fluent in English, French, and Dutch, and actually wrote in three languages. Do yourself a favor, read those this summer, or winter, or spring, or fall. Thank you to Jonathan Safran Fowler for being here with us this week on Murmur. Murmurradio.com, live every week, WHUPLP, Hillsborough, and Evergreen. Downloadable iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you for being with us. Drop us a line. We love talking to you. We love hearing from you. One day maybe we'll see you. Until we see you, we'll see you.